podcast with James and Jane. Hi, this is James. Just before we start, I wanted to remind you that you can read our articles, explore more podcasts, and learn about our online personal and management development programs and workshops by visiting our website, www.worldofwork.io. All right, on to the podcast. Hi, everyone. This is James. And Jane. And here we are again with another episode of a World of Work podcast. We're up to number 14. Oh, James, you always do that. You always tell me how many it is, and then I go, oh, my life. Yeah. Well, you realise that digits. means we've been talking to each other for like 14 hours. It's incredible, isn't it, right? And right. that's excluding the prep. I mean, it's incredible. We don't prep. No, sorry, we just wing it. In fact, we don't have notes or anything. I mean, I, it's just all from the top of the mind. I know, right? and we're sitting in a really serene room with yeah, no distractions. Absolutely. Um, so number 14, right? Um, as ever, you can look at the extra content we've got for you guys. It's up at www.thewildpodcast.org or if you want to get in touch ask us to do some other stuff you can uh, get us on Twitter yeah at the Wild Podcast where we'll be also posting um, some of that additional information after this goes out yeah cool so that's us um, today we're going to be progressing a little bit with a chat we had last week about innovation so last week we did a bit of a high level introduction to innovation and talked about incremental and disruptive innovation and some stuff around culture and leadership Um, Today we're going to deep dive a little bit into, I guess, two fairly popular theories of innovation. One around um, the theory of S-curves and, I guess, the innovator's dilemma. And then we'll speak a little bit about the Medici effect as well. Um, We'll do our usual run-through, so we'll have some definitions for you. We'll do a research roundup, do a list of the week, stories from the keyboard, final thoughts, and then we'll check out. And that's the plan. It's almost like there's a plan, isn't it? It's suspicious. I, I, Suspiciously familiar. Yeah, it's getting there, isn't it? Okay. Um, so that's us. Anything you want to say about your week to start us off? Oh, my week? Ooh. Oh, it's been a week, James. Has it? It has been a week this week. Um, I am, yeah, I'm pretty feeling pretty good. Yeah? Right? It's It's been a very positive week. Lots got done, uh, which is always nice. And lots got done that I was meant to be doing, which is really nice. That's an so, extra yeah, bonus, isn't it? I, I'm feeling good. Um, and I'm actually really excited about this subject because particularly uh, the Medici effect is something that um, I just like it. It's nice. You know, sometimes you get a bit yeah. of theory and you just go, I get this and I like it. And I think it's a really useful tool. Everything for me is always about, is it a useful tool? Yeah. And it is for me. That's nice. What about you? Uh, so I've had a nice week. I've got um, some follow-up on some coaching coaching things that I'd set up. It's fun when, you know, you sort of have somebody contact you and then it sort of goes quiet and then they pick up again and say oh right okay that's really good so I had a few of those where um, where I've got some sessions set up for, for those of you on uh, on the internet here I am progressing through my sort of professional qualification as an ICF coach and I need to do some things uh, for that um, and that's progressing because I've got some people now and people are willing to be recorded having coaching sessions and that's kind of exciting so I've been doing some of that um, that is exciting it is exciting I still really enjoy my coaching it's funny it's not um definitely not the core of what I do but I really like it and it adds something yeah. really to my I tell you work. what it's much better or much more fun doing it than it is watching a video of yourself doing it talk about like you think listening to your voice is that cringy just yeah and you've got to go back and watch it and write commentary about yourself and all this kind of stuff it's oh there's pretty... nothing like a bit of reflective writing yeah, about your practice it, exactly that's very that's very counselling so it's all good stuff anyway um, so this week innovation S-curves Medici effect do you want to kick us off maybe yeah. with some definitions should we get started so yeah, for those of you who listened last week a couple of these are going to sound familiar innovation from Oxford Dictionary the introduction of new things ideas or ways of doing something and then the Cambridge because you know 
James likes to be really balanced. Got to balance Um, it. uh, Disruption, an interruption to the usual way that a system, process, or event works. Um, The three that will be new, certainly, to these podcasts. One is interdisciplinary, which from dictionary.com is defined as combining or involving two or more professions, technologies, departments, or the like, as in business or industry. So... I'm, I'm going to ignore the or the like. Yeah, it's funny. I think the most important thing is it's about um, two fields coming together. Or more, yeah. Um, or two or more fields yeah. coming together and working across each other with yeah. the intent, I think, you could say, of learning, right? Yeah, they and learn developing. from each other. You share, share knowledge. From yeah. Um, product lifecycle from tutortoyou.com. Uh, the stages a product goes through from when it is first thought of until it finally is removed from the market. Introduction, growth, maturity, and decline. Oh, it's like life. It is, isn't it? Well, it's a life cycle. We'll all be there. Yeah. And Maybe then, I'm still um, in growth. You never know. I'm, I'm, hey, I'm full on intending to be in growth till the end. Okay. You know. Maybe we should just get rid of maturity. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because clearly they don't all, the sta- it's not stages that everything goes through. Not everything no. hits maturity. Lots no. and lots of things fail. Yeah. Uh, before then. So, and then diversity from Cambridge again. Um, a range of different things or people or in the context of um, of diversity in the way that we'll probably talk about it more, the fact of many different types of things or people being included in something. So um, having diversity of thought, people, uh, ideas, uh, products, anything like that. Lots yeah, it's of, a range know, of stuff. It is. It? Cool. Uh, I, I, yeah, it's a range. Yeah. Cool. So that's, uh, that's our definitions. Do you gonna take us through your research roundup? Yeah, why don't I do a little bit of research roundup? Um, as we said at the beginning, we're going to do two things. We're going to talk about the S-curve and, I guess, the innovator's dilemma. And this is stuff that was, you know, sort of late 90s. I think it was like 97, 98. Clayton Christensen wrote a book about the innovator's dilemma. Um, and this is some of some of his work from there. Uh, and then after that, we're going to speak a little bit about this Medici effect idea, which is another concept of innovation um, that's from Franz Johansson. Um, speaking uh, about the importance of sort of diversity and intersectionality in um, in creating innovative uh, new developments. So if we start with the S curve, uh, I'd say at this point it's probably useful to look at the slides or get googling or other search engineing. And just a reminder: if you are driving or in any situation <laughs> yeah. on planes, you can't do that. Don't worry, it will make sense when you look at it later. Yeah, yeah. But yes, I would definitely say if you get the chance, have a look at what we've got online because it will really help you out. Yeah. So what I'm going to do is try and talk through the S-curve and explain a little bit about the way that technologies um, lead to products and the way that those products exist in a market over time. Um, So, you know, at the beginning, Jane mentioned the product lifecycle, so talking about introduction, growth, maturity and decline. And this is basically what happens to all products when they get introduced to a market or, or when they're operating in a market. So if you think about the marketplace, a new product will be introduced into it. It'll be the first time it's there. Early adopters will buy it and get involved. Um, if it's productive and adds value for them and, and it's a popular product, then its market penetration will start to grow. It'll take off. It becomes more popular. And then after a little while, it, it can become a mature product. So it costs production falls. It becomes, to some extent, more profitable for the organizations or the price falls so that more people can buy it. It becomes a higher volume product um, and it it fits well within the market. It might be a market leading mature product. And then after time, what starts to happen is actually it starts to decline as a product. So 
typically what happens is um, a new technology comes along or you know a radical change to regulation or, or social preferences come along and and the actual you know uh, attractiveness of that product declines so sales volumes fall price starts to get affected and generally there's a bit of a substitution effect and people start to transition to a new product and if you take that that sort of journey of a product and put it on um, a graph showing time on your horizontal and product performance on your vertical you kind of get this little s shape so it's introduced and then over time the product performance goes up slowly then it starts to grow and it goes up a lot more steeply and then it becomes mature and your curve flattens out a bit and then eventually that line stops as it gets discontinued and that's that's really the s curve right it just shows you know the, the, the growth of a product of a product's performance over time from introduction through growth stabling out in maturity and then discontinued um, when when it's no longer being used and there's an alternative to it so what i'm going to do is i was going to use a couple of examples from some different technologies to show how the s-curve works for different technologies sequentially over time so if we start back a little while ago we're going to use audio um, as a technology to run through here so our first technology is cassettes so cassettes are brought in a long time ago they're doing pretty well they're a mature market, right? And that means that they're profitable for the large organizations that run them. They're established. They've got a good market penetration. Um, consumers value them. They're at a good price point. They're fairly ubiquitous. Very strong product that is mature um, and adding value for its consumers and its producers. And then what happens? Well, at the time that cassettes are, are mature, you get a new technology starting to break in. You get CDs. So CDs start to be introduced to the market while cassettes are mature. So they come out, they're a high price point, they're for early adopters, um, and a few people start to, to look at them. And at this point, um, the technology starts to ferment within the market. So uh, audio cassettes are mature, CDs are fermenting, they're starting to be used. And then after a little while, what you see is the, the CD curve gets steeper. So they're kind of being proven. So people understand that they work, they can see the value, they see their durability, they see their compactness, and CD technology starts to take off. So scale of production increases, cost reduces, um, advertising spend increases, uptake rates come along, new users develop them, new hardware producers produce new hardware equipment to play them on, and that market starts to take off. And as that market starts to take off and as it starts to progress into the next stage of maturity, what you see is the, C, the cassette market discontinuing or becoming a very niche market. So the volumes fall, um, we're following volumes, profitability falls, the attractiveness of that market declines and a lot of people step away from that market. And those few people that are left are maybe niche players, maybe they're high costs, and if not high costs for sales, they've got low profit. So, so that market discontinues and CDs now are mature. They're the medium or the technology that is performing well, it's generating high profits, it's popular, consumers are all ready for it, it's got great volumes, it's um, generating returns, it's generating benefit for consumers and organizations. And then what happens? Well, they go along very nicely, and then along comes another technology. And before you know it, MP3s are out there, right? So you get MP3 players or other forms of digital storage of content on computers. And again, these start slowly. You know, they're introduced to the market and maybe it's initially just techie people, you know, people who are really good with their computers who are like, hey, I don't even need a CD. I can just store this on my hard drive. And you get some of your early adopters doing it. You get um, 
you get you know your sort of early mp3 players and then you know somebody thinks it's going to work and then before you know it apple says oh look we're going to introduce the ipod and so that comes out and that market starts to ferment and before you know the mp3s have taken off um and cds are effectively discontinued so that s-curve journey happens over and over as new disruptive technologies enter marketplaces and what's important or several things are important but one of the important things is to do with who does that introduction and um, ferment stage of technologies so what you tend to see is that established market leaders tend to have the mature products and they can think about how they work with introducing and innovating new new products but quite often it's actually different organizations that start with the innovation and a lot of the reason is because mature products operate in fairly saturated markets they tend to have fairly high barriers to entry there's such economies of scale in there but it's hard for new entrants to tackle mature products using the same technology so it tends to be smaller organizations maybe taking more risks being more innovative and bringing that innovation um, to the market and they start small they start with their small populations and their small sales figures and then that grows and as those new entrants find that their technologies are taking off they start to displace the existing um, mature organizations um, the pace of this S-curve and I guess the gradient of it um, differ across uh, specific innovations and they vary um, over different industries but fundamentally that's that sort of innovation product performance versus time journey is something that you can see in, um, in many organizations and you know we spoke about it earlier and, and like you said Jane it, it feels just like kind of common sense in lots of ways doesn't it I mean it's just kind of stuff happens it takes off it's mature and then it disappears it's like all of us right yeah I guess the things that the thing uh, and you're right that is what I said and so I will own that I did say it's, I, I believe the phrase I used was it feels just like really obvious common sense mm-hmm. but I do you know reflect on it as you've spoken through it as always you've provoked some thought and um, I guess the important part is that to recognise that for whatever reason uh, organisations don't just keep innovating the same product and I know you're going to get onto why yeah. in a minute but I think it's important to recognise that uh, there are always other people looking at things differently yeah. because you know if if one of the cassette companies let's say or indeed records for that all, yeah, records. Um, had been smart enough they would have you know branded it something and whether it was a cassette what form it took actually wouldn't have been relevant and they would yeah. have just kept moving through them but for whatever reason and I know you're going to mm. go on to that you know we do need to recognise that they are different and it is there is quite often an interloper mm. yeah. um, which I think is important and I think this concept of, it's interesting because you use the word displacement mm-hmm. and I think it's really important and actually when I reflect on our conversation about disruptive innovation last week I think yeah. displacement is really interesting Yeah. because actually that feels like the most disruptive thing you can do which is utterly displace a form, yeah, yeah. Uh, a form of product or service yeah so you were speaking there a little bit around you know how this affects organizations and their production now if you think about that maturity phase right this is where you start to really get the the dilemma for these organizations if you have a mature product as an organization and your obligation to your stakeholders is or your shareholders is to maximize returns then really you're in a tough spot right because your mature product is selling in high volumes it's profitable 
It's stabilized. You've invested a lot of capital building that production process. You've marketed it. You've branded it. You've got your entire corporate infrastructure set up around it. And you actually want to keep selling that mature product. Um, in you know the, the language of the Boston metrics, it might be that that's a cash cow for you, right? You've got this thing and it's great. And you're generating the best return on capital that you can for your shareholders. So as a legal entity, as a, as a director with legal obligations, you need to maximize that and you need to protect that and you need to market it and you need to maintain that market position so that you can continue to generate those returns. And the dilemma is that you need to do that, right? I mean, you've got an obligation and you want to do it, but at the same time, um, you've got a, a real challenge around what's the next technology. And like you said, you know, if you're running your, uh, your records, you want to be inventing cassettes and then you want to be inventing DVDs and so on. But it's hard. You've got this split decision making. You want to protect your own market leading industry, market leading product, so that there is no innovation and that you can continue to maximize that. But at the same time, sorry, and that, that means there's a disincentive to innovate. Because you don't want to waste all that capital. You want to squeeze the capital that you've invested in that as long as you can to generate as much sort of lifetime return over your investment on that as you can. Um, but you do have an incentive to innovate because you know that somebody's going to come along and innovate you out of the market, right? So you'll be disrupted and replaced. So, so you've got to do both of these things. You've got to make the most of your invested capital and maximize your mature product. But you also, as an organization, need to transition to the next step of technology and bring that along with you. Otherwise, you become obsolete, right? So, you know, classic examples of this are both in the sort of visual media, the ones that spring to mind immediately. So one would be Blockbuster failing to move on to digital video. Um, another one's Kodak failing to move on to Kodak's digital video. always cameras. my favorite. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? And Kodak were a great and, company. And you know what? And Kodak are still around. And what will be interesting is Where what happens next. Yeah. You know. and, and I... I can you ride it out is the question. Yeah. Can you ride out falling behind in an industry like that and yeah. then catch up? Come back. Again? It's interesting. Um, so as an organization, you've got this dilemma, right? So you need to maintain your product, but you also need to be part of the next stage of innovation. And there are several different ways that, that firms do that. So if you think about innovation and particularly you know, acquisition of new technologies, there are different ways that large organizations can do it. Uh, these are organizations for mature products. So, so option one is you can invest in the source research and development yourself. So you can have a big R&D field. You can be, I don't know, one of your, your big pharmaceuticals. You can have a huge R&D budget. You can burn cash trying to create the next technology. So that's option one is kind of being your own innovation um, lab. Another option is that as a large organization, you can try and partner with smaller organizations. So you can say, well, let's, let's take some of our guys. Let's set up a partnership. Let's set up a joint venture. Let's co-own something. Let's try and keep it, you know, with a distinct culture that is innovative and creative and be a part owner of new intellectual property coming out of that and new designs. So you join up with younger, um, more innovative organizations and try and try and uh, innovate and identify new products that way. And then your third large option is to purchase innovation. So here you say, you know what, we are really good at working at scale. We own our big products. They're mature. We can run effectively and efficiently the production and marketing and logistics around supplying the world with um, mature product X CDs. Um, but we're not really good at creating new things. So what we're going to do is we're going to wait till somebody comes along uh, and introduces a new product. We're going to wait till it ferments a little bit. As soon as we see that it's popular, we'll go and buy it. And we'll generate returns on capital by spending our capital acquiring new technology that way. So that's really the third option. Um, 
and I guess that's that's really all I wanted to say about the innovation S curves. I just wanted to you know share the graph, share the relationship between product performance and time, and discuss the fact that innovation leads to discontinuity and obsolescence in older technologies, um, and to say that you know large organisations do have this split of a disincentive to innovate because they want to maximise their existing products and an incentive to innovate because they don't want to be left behind. And they do that in a couple of different ways, by innovating themselves, by partnering for innovation and by purchasing innovation. So that for me is a snapshot review of some of the work on innovation S-curves and um, Clayton Christensen's really pivotal book that a lot of people have said is one of the most important books of, um, I think, the sort of 20th century in terms of innovation. So there so your we go. tip is read it. I would actually read it. And, and you know what? You guys can write in and tell me how I've got it all wrong as well. That's You're very welcome to That's the whole point, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Tell so, us we're wrong. Cool. So what, what else are we going to talk about? So that's S-curves. I think next we're going to jump on to the Medici effect and just talk a little bit about what Sounds that good. is and, um, and reflect on that. And interestingly, we had um, Clayton Christensen, who's got a fairly... Scandic last name, and here we've got Franz Johansson. He's got a, another fairly Scandic surname, so maybe we've got um, something about the power of Scandinavia and in innovation. Who knows? Anyway, so the Medici effect is something that we can talk about now. Do you want to say a little bit? Do you want me to chat about? No, it? no, no, go no, for your go life. For I just I'm uh, for those of you who can't see, which is everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually rubbing my hands together, <laughs> not just metaphorically. I'm. This is one of my favourite uh, pieces of theory. Cool. Okay, so Franz Johansson, as I said, is a Swedish um, guy. I think this was like 2004, 2005, he, he sort of called this out. And it's nice, it's like nice theoretical piece. Um, in terms of a bit of a background, I guess it's worth calling out who the Medici were, what you know, the Medici family mm-hmm. was. So um, I don't know the dates, but like 1450 onwards um, in Florence, I believe Medici's were. Yep. Um, Italian Renaissance family, banking, yay. Lots of return on investment for those guys. Um, so as a as a banking family, they were. Oh, that's a shoehorn. <laughs> that's a shoehorn in. I had opportunities earlier. I, I talked about return on capital, but I had to get that one in. Um, so uh, banking family, Florence, um, Renaissance period, fourteen fifties ish. One of the things that they did with their large amount of wealth and and uh, influence in the city state that they had is they brought together um, and patronized in the traditional sense the. Uh, a, a large population of diverse people around them. So they um, they were the patrons of scientists. They were the patrons of the arts. They were patrons of um, music, um, and and they brought together all these diverse people uh, into one place, um, and gave them money to pursue their interests and their expressions and their explorations, um, and uh, and the things that they they love to work on. Um, and what happened through this uh, bringing together of diversity and cross-disciplinary people was a real sort of renaissance um, birth of creativity and ideas and um, innovation and and a a huge amount of um, productivity and forward thinking. So that's who the Medici were and that's kind of what happened around them. It's kind of the birth of uh, renaissance type thinking there. Um, And so when we talk about the Medici effect and when Franz Johansson talks about it, what he's really talking about is the fact that a lot of great ideas and sort of step change and, and that sort of disruptive innovation occur when you bring ideas and talented people from different fields together so that they can collaborate. 
So the Medici did it by funding all these different people to come together and creating this environment where um, that sort of interdisciplinary working was encouraged. Um, and what Franz Johansson says in his work is that actually over time, this interdisciplinary approach really leads to great innovations in lots of areas. In fact, he, I think he says that nearly all great innovations are a result of ideas moving from one discipline or one, one sort of uh, conceptual framework to another. Um, so that's kind of a, the background on the Medici effect. And he's got um, six principles that he talks about in there. Uh, and we'll touch, touch on them. I think it's six. He might have seven different ones, actually. I'm not sure. Um, so there are a couple of principles that it's worth thinking about. And like you said, Jane, these are things that people in, in work can think about to some extent. You know, I mean, they can maybe learn some lessons for their organisations as well. Yeah, and the, the, one of the reasons that I really like this piece of work is that um, I feel like anybody could take what some of these principles and think about in a really practical sense quite easily how they could apply them. And I would challenge every listener... If you think there's not a principle in here that you could help you in your role, I want to know what your role is because I reckon I could tell you what you could do in, in a way to refresh or to yeah. think what you're doing. Cool. All right, so let's run through some of um, Franz Janssen's principles. So the first one I really like. Um, it says, all new ideas are combinations of existing ideas. And it's true. I mean, you know, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants, right? I mean, that's what it is. All these ideas are the result of other ideas, you know? I don't think new ideas um, are really anything other than a build on prior knowledge of humanity. So I'm quite comfortable. And in many ways, that's kind of a liberating idea because it means it's okay, you know? Think about these things and, and bring them together. Um, in terms of what that means for sort of organizations, it means that leaders should try and create opportunities for these different types of ideas to be combined. Um, this can be, you know, at an organizational level through trying to create maybe cross-functional teams. Um, so you've actually got specialist teams or you could maybe set up project teams which bring people in from different functional areas. Um, or you could even think about broadening the responsibilities of teams or individuals so that they've got a breadth of things uh, and responsibilities and accountabilities and knowledge within them. So this is all about broadening the range of things that, that you think about and that affect you. So I think that's a nice principle, and it's something I think it's kind of actionable as well if you're looking for innovation. Um, his next point, point number two, I like as well. He says, not all idea combinations are created equal. Right, that, I'm grinning because I I am so glad he put that in there. Yeah, it's true, right? I mean, sometimes you think I'll combine, I don't know, yogurt and olive oil into a lovely dessert and you try it and it's dreadful or whatever. I just, uh, and it's, and it's a, a massive warning, right, to people. Do not innovate for the sake of innovation. Do not yeah. create brand new things just because you think it'll be fun. Yeah. You know, use, use some level of scrutiny. Yeah, yeah. And, and he goes on to say that, you know, if you're taking ideas that are closely linked, like closely related, if you combine those, you'll get some benefit if it works out well, if it's a good combination. But if you really start to broaden out and, and bring ideas in from really divergent areas, so for example, you know, you might have, um, in terms of closely linked things, you might bring together somebody from, in my background, insurance and corporate finance or, you know, corporate banking. Those are fairly linked fields. You might bring them together. If they get a good combination, they might make a new product that's a bit better. However, if you bring somebody uh, really divergent together, if you brought maybe somebody from corporate um, banking, and potentially, I don't know... Um, care home management. Care home management, great. So with that, you might find something really radical and different that comes out of that. And because of the divergence between those two fields, 
you might come up with something that's really impactful if, if you get something that's right. So in terms of things leaders should do, they should find ways to, to bring together loosely linked ideas. And as we said in, in the first piece, it's about bringing together those divergent groups, divergent thinking styles, divergent individuals, just you know, broaden out the opportunity to bring together really different ideas. And that links back to diversity that we talked about earlier. Um, point number three about this is that more ideas lead to better ideas. Sometimes you just need to have a whole load of ideas, just chuck them out, get loads of them, ideate, be creative. You know, the more ideas you have, um, the more ideas you're gonna have. You know, each idea kind of spurs more ideas for other people. Um, and and the what's you... the warning in that one? It's... Don't stop at your first idea. Yeah, don't stop. It might turn out to be your best, yeah. but don't stop because there'll be so much more behind it. Yeah, and don't stop at your own ideas. Get somebody else's ideas. Oh, definitely don't stop at your own ideas. Yeah, and once you've seen somebody else's ideas, show them to a third person and say, hey, do these ideas give you any ideas? Um, so as a leader, leaders should try and create opportunities for new ideas to arise. They should help them circulate. Um, and you can do that through in your teams. You've got ideation exercises, um, things like brainstorming. You can create stimulating working places you know the reason some of these offices have foosball tables and whatever else you know green and red and purple bean bags is that all this stuff is kind of stimulating and helps create a diversity supposedly. of ideas supposedly yeah but uh, the reason uh, they honestly, do it is that the greatest innovation i've ever seen in uh-huh. teams is with cross-functional teams is where they socialize together outside yeah. of the office actually yeah, it makes no matter what you do yeah, to the yeah, office yeah. as soon as you get people outside of it just it's a different context right yeah. Yeah. So you talk about things in a different way. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, another thing that you can do to help with this creation of more ideas is sort of rotating individuals through your teams. So, you know, you give people an opportunity to move and have short-term secondment mm-hmm. to things like that. And Yeah, massive fan of short-term secondment. Yeah, really powerful way to spread your ideas. Well, it also helps the team that you're seconded from because then you get some stimulation of a different uh, dynamic. Yeah, you know, job swaps are a great way to do it. You mutually do it, it's, it's great. Um, and, and of course you can do things like provide lectures and talks to your workplace that, that bring new ideas in as mm-hmm. well. So that's point three. Point four is to plan for mistakes and failures, right? So you need to, you need to know that stuff is gonna go wrong. So you gotta plan for it to go wrong. And if you don't have a plan for it to go wrong, you'll be disappointed when it does. But in reality, I mean, stuff goes wrong a lot and you need to be ready, um, ready for it to go wrong. So as leaders, what you need to do is, is to be aware that there are going to be many failures on the path to success in terms of innovation. So just accept that early on and, and know it, um, and know that you need to learn from it, but celebrate it, be aware, move on to the next thing quickly. You know, most ideas will yield failure, right? Um, and the thing is, you know, even if you've got a great idea, it'll still have lots of obstacles to go from the germination of that idea through to a product that's effective or a new way of working or something that's implemented. So there are gonna be challenges to overcome. You'll need to discard the bad ideas. Um, you'll need to stop spending time on the things that are not gonna get off the ground. But even on the things that are great, you need to face into the challenges, overcome the problems, keep moving on. Um, so you know, planning for mistakes and failures is important. The next one that I'm a big fan of, though it's a bit harder, is around uh, point number five is sticking to your passions, right? So, you know, a lot of the innovations come out when people really work on things that they kind of work on regardless of um, whether it was a job or not. You know, things that you're really passionate about tend to be where you get a lot of innovation, right? Um, and part of the reason that that happens is that there are so many failures, but if you're not really passionate about something, 
you can lose interest and move on to the next thing. But if you really care and are passionate, then chances are that you'll you'll push on through that. Um, you know, the passion will help you with that continued effort um, and the drive you need to overcome all the different challenges and, and failures you'll face along the way. And we've got some examples of people, right? I mean, um, one I was going to mention was um, James Dyson, who I think made something like 5,000 vacuum cleaners, his prototype. And he must just really like like stuff that moves air around, right? Because making 5,000 of those things is phenomenal. So I think without question, and, and it's a big for me, it's a big difference between ideas and bringing them to market. Mm-hmm. I think people who bring ideas to market um, have a tenacity. Tenacity is a great that word is, for it. Um, that is just beyond... I mean, I think I'm tenacious, but my word. You know, when you think about Steve Jobs, when you think about uh, Dyson, when you think about... Um, the guy who invented the printing press who like you know yeah. kept hurting himself yeah um i just think it's extraordinary that you would just lock yourself in a garage yeah. and just go again and again and again and it's this it it's it's a compulsion right it's a compulsion to find yeah. what they think is there and they until they can bring it into into existence and i think yeah. um and and what's interesting is one of the reasons i think they have the best ideas is for the same reason they're not prepared to go with them. They just keep going. They're like, yeah. no, more is there, but I'm not quite. I'm yeah, not quite. Yeah, yeah. Something refined, change, is re- and, the, and it is. It's refining. Yeah. You know, I, I imagine that one of those five thousand worked. It yeah. just didn't work to the spec he wanted. Yeah. And so, therefore, for me, that's what's really interesting about this ability to run. And I think quite often we talk about new things, mm-hmm. um, and new dis- like we, last time we talked about disruption, for example. And I think um, I'm really interested in this concept of of actually these guys they are they have these huge different ideas yeah but then they refine them and 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 that's what that's an art yeah it's a science but it's also an art yeah it is and it's such a human skill to do that I mean to just keep going and to like I couldn't even imagine like using 5,000 vacuum cleaners in my life let alone I think it's yeah I mean he's not my favourite person from a uh, some of the comments he's made recently about British society but you cannot you cannot question the man's utter drive yeah to make air you products. just can't he, yeah. you just you look at his story and you go and you know what you know what's sitting in my cupboard yeah Buy some vacuum yeah, cleaner yeah, yeah, yeah. so I can't you know he had a vision and it's boring right vacuum yeah. cleaners are dull yeah that's what's astonishing about all of this who in their right mind sits there and thinks I'm going to change the vacuum cleaner yeah. but it's a, it's a but my bet is and I think thing. if you listen to a story I can't remember the exact story but basically he was going this is rubbish yeah I'm using it and it's rubbish yeah. there's got to be a better way yeah that's good so sticking to your passions you know, yeah. it's the best chance for success helps you overcome those things and then um, Franz Janssen's last point um, with his phrasing here I think is step into the intersection and unleash an explosion of ideas so what what he's really getting at here is that you know the best way to come up with this variety of ideas is to be really diverse so step into environments in which you will experience really divergent ideas and concepts um, so in terms of what leaders can do here is they can really role model this. Um, they, can, um, they can create opportunities for their teams to get a real broad range of ideas. They can um, bring in diversity to their teams. They can have different, as I said earlier, people from different backgrounds. They can um, bring in different products and technologies and really try and create cultures that reward people for exploring the intersections of ideas and processes and all that kind of stuff. So those are, those are the points here. So. I'll, I'll run through them again. Um, number one, all new ideas are combinations of existing ideas. 
Number two, not all idea combinations are created equal. Number three, more ideas lead to better outcomes. Number four, plan for mistakes and failures. Number five, stick to your passions. It's the best chance for success. And number six, step into the intersection, unleash an explosion of ideas. So that's kind of a roundup. Um, and you know, as the name suggests, it's really about diversity and variety. And if you bring together all this diversity and um, cross-sectionality and intersectionality with some tenacity, um, then that's your best chance of creating something really interesting from an innovation perspective. So I think that's the Medici effect it in is, a nutshell. It is indeed. So hopefully listeners can understand why I've got a particular soft spot for it's it. It's kind of fun, isn't it? It is. It's fun and it's, it's, it feels good. It does, right? doesn't it? Yeah. I, there's nothing I enjoy more than a bit, and you know, we all look for the things that confirm our own behaviours yes, and habits, yes, right? Do, yeah. Nothing I enjoy more than hearing a really sound piece of business theory that completely backs my personal beliefs yes. about diversity. Yeah, yeah. Um, and about intersection and about the way that we all need to step outside of the way we are yeah. and look at what other people are doing. Yeah. More, lots more. There's good stuff. Mm-hmm. There's really good stuff in the world. I think um, some of the best conversations I've ever had have been with secondary school teachers. Mm. I don't know anything about teaching. I yeah. really don't. But And I certainly don't know anything about secondary school teaching. But without question, the way that they they manage their learners' journeys, yeah. I have learned huge amounts of that yeah. from and, and been able to take it into lots of the things that I've thought about. Yeah. I, on that, I went into... Um... I went into a primary school with somebody I know who's a deputy head a little while ago and we were talking about learning. And it was fascinating for me coming from a corporate environment to the, the sort of, um, I guess, eight, nine, 10 year old um, type classrooms and seeing the things that they had in there in terms of, uh, they had sort of ways of working, behaviors, um, sort of contracting type things that, mm-hmm. that are the types of things we try and agree in a corporate environment, but we struggle. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to do it there. So it's just great to see. Quite often, They're better, more effective, I know. Better yeah. and more effective. And one of the things that's really beautiful about listening to teachers talk about it is their utter tenacity. Yeah. So what's astonishing about a school teacher is they effectively quite often are teaching the same curriculum year, not always, but year in, year out. Yeah. And yet they're looking for new ways. They're looking for yeah. better ways. They're looking to do it for the right customer. And it's just... I've, I, I'm really passionate about learning from education and the people yeah. who do it because I think the level of tenacity they have to have and the resilience is extraordinary. Yeah. And they do. Yeah, yeah. And they do it really well. Yeah. Like I've had some really great teachers in my um, in my younger days. Yeah. And that's a, a lot of that is your sort of, pardon me, your, your sort of incremental innovation mm. to make it a bit better every yeah. year. But I guess at the, at the same time, occasionally something disruptive comes Well, out. it does, because I would imagine IT didn't exist as a subject yeah. 20 years ago, and someone was going to have to deal with that. Yeah. And CDT, which was craft design and technology in my day, yeah. right? Technology was like a wood uh, lasers. Or oh, no, yeah. no, no, oh, it was right, laser okay. measurements. Oh, okay. oh yeah, like that. yeah, okay. That was just, that was wood spot. Thank you. <laughs> I that was the craft part. <laughs> oh, right, okay. um, But yes, um, it, and it's astonishing now. I remember, oh, yeah, anyway. Okay, brilliant. Cool. All right, so quite technical research roundup today. Yeah, it two is. really good bits of theory for you to get your teeth stuck into, um, and I guess that moves us on to list of the week. Yeah. Okay, I have a massive shout out to James for this list of the week because he has pulled together a list of uh, some practical, and I almost wish he hadn't given it to me, and we could have played a game to guess what they were because <laughs> it's that good. Uh, he's pulled together five examples of intersectional innovation that I'm going to talk to you about. Um, so that is where. Two fields, two or more fields have collided, um, or two or more ideas have collided to create something that 
I would have hazard a bet wouldn't have been created had those fields not collided, yeah, right? That's yeah. where I'd be. Or uh, well, certainly not in the form they are. So the first um, is mathematics and electrical engineering. So I'm going to pause for just a second or two after each time I read them out. Just give the listeners a couple of seconds to guess, to what, guess that what that might it is. be. Yeah. So mathematics and electrical engineering. And this is like 1930s. I just okay. Context, good context. Yeah. Good context. 1930s. And I'm going to read out. Uh, I'm going to read out some of the information before I tell you what it is. So Claude Shannon, by studying both mathematics and electrical engineering, saw links between Boolean algebra, which is basically binary thinking, um, and how we could structure relays and logic gates in automatic telephone exchanges. Put simply. He showed that we could use relays to solve Boolean algebra problems. That is basic digital computing and is the birthplace of computers. So mathematics and electrical engineering crashes. And when you when you know it, yeah. it's so obvious, yeah. right? When and you now, know it's computers, of course that's where it came from. Yeah, and now we almost think of mathematics and electrical engineering as a very similar and related set of fields. Certainly in yeah. terms of digital products. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's astonishing. And, and, you know, Claude just happened to be doing a dual degree, right? He was studying both of them. And so... Is that what it was? Yeah, that, just yeah. he was doing a dual degree. degree. And his, like, um, his dissertation is cited as one of the most influential papers of, um, of any uh, sort of postgrad type work, um, which obviously it is, if this is what it's led to. So that's interesting. I didn't know who Claude was up until a couple weeks ago. I really like that. Okay, so number two on the list. Uh, what happens, and I think this one's slightly more obvious, what happens <laughs> when is. computers and linguistics crashes? Okay, so we're talking about the intersection of computing and linguistics where the deep understanding of both computing and the structures, probability, fidelity, fidelity and entropy of information in language um, has allowed to develop things like effective voice recognition and message prediction, thus the creation of Siri and all the other voice-based personal assistants. So when computers and linguistics crashes together, you get computational linguistics, or as we know it, voice-activated technology. Yeah, which I love. It's fun, isn't it? It's totally fun. This is yeah. I. This is the best list ever. <laughs> um, next one. So botany. No one's going to get this one, right? <laughs> botany. And electrical engineering, electrical engineering, man. That's what they should tell you at school. You want to invent stuff, go do electrical engineering. Yeah, engineering is the way forward. Engineering is always the way forward. Engineers, man, they're amazing. So, botany and electrical engineering. So, um, thinking about a deeper understanding of botany, particularly leaf structures. Maybe that's a clue. Leaf structures and mechanisms. Um, And biomimicry, which is basically copying nature. Um, it's really common component uh, of interdisciplinary innovation generally, and there are other examples. But imagine if that came into contact with electrical engineering. What would you get? Solar panels. So uh, solar panels effectively, um, and the development particularly in, in working solar panels, because I think it's important probably to mention mm-hmm. solar panels. Have been, they've been trying to do it for decades, probably centuries. Um, but a lot of it, uh, and a lot of the development of it, came from a understanding how leaf structures and mechanisms worked, and generally just exploring how nature. 
Which makes total sense, right? Because you're using nature to create electricity, so of course... Yeah, the and what do leaves do? I mean, leaves sit up there and pick up some sun and do all that stuff. Yeah, and, I mean, it's know. just, it's so obvious. Yeah. Bi- uh, generally, I think biomimicry is fascinating. Yeah, it's fantastic, yeah. It's brilliant. Okay, so one really close to my home, uh, my home, our home, um, is what happens when you crash psychology and the study of psychology with management science. Um and crash those two areas of theory and academic research together. Well, let's think about it. What, what's common with both? Uh, behaviour of people. Uh, we've got things like theories of change, which are relevant to both of them. And what do you get? You get organisational psychology. So you get uh, what I like to refer to as the science of how not to be an idiot at work. That's uh, good. That's absolutely good. <laughs> not what it's called. But yeah. I, that is, I am doing it. So that's yeah, what I'm yeah. studying at the moment uh, at uni. And how to help other people not be idiots and, as well. Yeah, well, that's that's the, the subtitle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what I'd like to change my LinkedIn profile to if I had the confidence. How not to be a, uh, an idiot at work. Uh, come see me. Yeah. Um, but so certainly it was only really when... Because management science really, as an academic thing, really developed very separately from a lot of the other academics. Yeah. And I think psychology has been really good at bridging that gap in a way that um, some of... Certainly, maybe the economics is the only other science I think that's done a decent job, and even then, I don't think they've been brilliant at it. So, when you think about things like psychological assessments for leadership and personality behaviours, um, that's a great example of intersectional innovation. Um, and the fifth one is uh, weirdly not two fields, it's loads of fields, and it didn't give us something, instead, um, it was it's a person, and I think. Yeah, I, James is really knocked out the park of this list because the number five on the list is Leonardo da Vinci. So it's really important, I think, and he, he's, he's absolutely right. We can't talk about this stuff, and particularly the Medici effect, without uh, talking about uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Because, I, and I never understood this when I was little, right? When I was little, he was an artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a painter, and he did a painting, and it was really famous. Yeah. Right? And then there was some weird stuff about him that I wasn't sure about. Like a beard or something like that, right? Well, yeah, and just, you know, there was a self-portrait as well. It was, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right? And yeah, as you learn more about him as you're growing up and you start understanding um, just what an extraordinary person was, he was constantly clashing fields, right? Deliberately putting things together. Um, so you've got a list here, which is great. Painting, architecture, science, maths, music, engineering, literature, anatomy, geology, astronomy, botany. And I would bet pretty much anything that was being studied, he was dicking his nose in. Yeah. You know, he is A, a great example of someone who's curious and therefore trying to figure it out. But also, he clearly believed you just keep smashing fields together yeah. and eventually something very special is going to happen. Yeah. And I think some of his drawings that he wasn't able to bring to fruition around flights and stuff yeah. like that are just, they're still seismic in very their impact, fantastic. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, in this example, his artistic ability and his painting ability is a great aid to his anatomy or vice versa you know he studies the anatomy he does yeah. dissections to study the he anatomy. learns <laughs> yeah he, he learns the um learns the human um human anatomy can capture it and then he can use that to understand um more about sort of life sciences and he can also use that to structure the way he paints things i mean it all just fits together it is it's, 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 it's quite extraordinary actually yeah. and i think if, if you don't know anything about Da Vinci, I would really, really encourage you to A, Google some of his drawings, because they yeah. are, they will blow your head off if you haven't seen them before, in terms of the context of his time and his place and what he was doing and yeah. what he was visualising. And then when you realise what wasn't around when he was doing it is amazing. Yeah, he's late, you're saying. And, yeah, and generally, if you can P, 
pick up even a bog standard biography of the man. He, I mean, he's just, I just think he's, I think he's the most probably still for me in the formulation. I know there's been bigger thinkers in terms of absolutely being able to point to the impact they've had. Yeah. But if you look at his body of work as a whole and the where our culture is yeah. now, you cannot debate, I don't think, that he is up there with, yeah. you know, dream dinner party guest and some. Yeah. Anyway, that's my um, yeah. dead man crush. Um, <laughs> so that's our five lists. Uh, list of five so five great examples of intersectional innovation we've got computers computational linguistics solar panels uh, organisational psychology which is a, a little nod to what we know yeah. and of course a mention for Leonardo da Vinci I would encourage every listener to go and find a better example because I bet you'd be able to find one so yeah I bet there are some great go ones, find right? a product that you love and go and find out what yeah. things clash because I bet they did all yeah. things yeah I'm sure I'm sure so that rounds up list of the week yeah, it, it got me thinking, just when you were chatting there about Leonardo da Vinci um, and the breadth of things that he was doing there, I was reading something the other day uh, that kind of fits into this. It, it's a bit tangential, but I kind of like it. And it was somebody describing how <clears throat> the more they know about something, the more they enjoy it, right? And so there's something about a, a phrase that I used to hear when I was younger, which is interested is interesting. You know, so if you're actually interested in something, it becomes interesting. The more you develop your breadth of knowledge about something, the more interesting and rewarding it is. So, so part of this effort to become innovative and to become almost sort of a, a polymath and things like that is self-perpetuating. Once you start to explore things, you, you can see interest in so many things and you can really pursue it. And the little nugget that came out of it, the thing that led me to um, share that, was actually somebody talking about apricots. How fun, right? And they were saying that they enjoy eating their apricot jam in the morning all the more for knowing that word apricot shares the same root as the word precocious. That's fun, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, who is that person? I like I, that I person. Can't, I can't remember exactly where it was. But apricots bloom and blossom and uh, flower and reach fruition early, mm. right? So precociousness is actually from the earliness of apricot. Oh, I love that. Isn't that, that. lovely, right? But yeah. the fact that that can make you enjoy your jam more is, is kind of a fact of life. The more you know about things, the more interesting it yeah. is and the easier it is to see. Things. I really like that. So anyway, that was a total side chat there. But No, but it's a good one. You learned about, learned about apricot jam. Cool. So I think we're getting towards the end. Have you got any sort of final thoughts you want to share? Uh, you got stories from the keyboard? Oh yeah, let's do stories from the keyboard. You're totally right on that. Well, only because I know you've got a good one. Yeah, okay. Well, why don't you kick us off? Okay, um, so I'll tell one. That was a, a near miss there. So when, when we spoke earlier about the innovation S-curves and we talked about some of the di- dilemmas that organizations face in terms of whether they innovate alone, partner to innovate, or purchase innovation, um, I was just going to play back a little bit from when I used to be more involved in fintech, uh, in, in sorry, sorry, financial services. And obviously over the last you know five to ten years, um, fintech's been a great... Um, a great proponent of innovation in financial services. So as a large financial services firm, the organization that I used to work for had to face into this decision. They needed to decide, do we want to innovate our own technologies? Do we want to partner to innovate? Or do we want to be an acquirer of intellectual property through innovation? And like many of these organizations that are large, you, you take a bit of a, multi, a multi-strand approach, multi, multi-stream approach to this, and do a little bit of all of them. Um, but the organization that I was in was particularly active in partnering to innovate. So as a large financial services firm, what we would do is we would set up um, hackathons. We'd invite local um, small startup companies in. We'd have weekends. We'd uh, set specific tasks and goals. And we'd work together. And we'd build those relationships. We'd 
um, provide funding, we'd help um, create enthusiasm, we'd help share our knowledge and our technology and our expertise and combine that with their passion and enthusiasm and skills and, um, and I guess, diversity to try and create new things there and then over those weekends, but also to build those uh, relationships. So for us, um, we really tried to focus on that partnering to innovate. And I think all the financial services firms do a mix of these things, but everybody has something that they're kind of major in. Uh, so I just thought that was a really good example of how the S-curve and the, the sort of innovator's dilemma plays out in the real world in financial services. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so it is actually, and that's I guess that's that bit of the research roundups really got me thinking about that concept of choices because I think it becomes... Um, very true so so working in the sports sector in the third sector yeah um there is there is a a mantra not a great one that is heard not and we're not the only ones there's other sectors that do this we're different we're different from everybody's everyone different everyone's Everyone, different right yeah, yeah, yeah. every sector's special how can we yeah. possibly know every team i've ever spoken and, to tells me that um, they're special. if i had a pound for every piece of software that's been built bespoke to either are oh, do anything that's off off the shelf these days yeah. so uh, CRM customer relationship yep. management um, apps to book sessions whatever it is if I had a pound for everyone that's been built because a company have convinced someone uh, someone in the sector that they're different they're special they need something special yeah. I would have a lot of money James yeah. Yeah, a I'm lot sure. of money and um, I guess the, the, the story that I would and I'm not going to name which organisation yep. it is because I will get in lots of trouble but there is an organisation I know that um got a piece of software developed they decided to do it in-house yeah. why why they're a sports organization they deliver sport right yeah why do you think you're the right people to develop um yeah. develop technology uh but what they did at the last minute was recognize that they didn't have the skills to actually build it okay and they partnered with an organization and it is now uh slowly becoming the uh industry standard right so um and I, I kind of deliberately sounded a bit stressed about it because when it happened, we all went, no, what are you doing getting involved in that world? Yeah. And what happened? Okay, they didn't do it entirely on their own. They got some help. But now, now they're running it. And they're actually, they're running it as an organisation. They're better at that than they were, not at their old job, but they're definitely very good at it. Yeah. And they've identified it's a completely, what I think is really important is they've identified that it's a completely different culture, different people, different skills, yeah. different, I mean, it might be the same company, but that's irrelevant. It's ultimately separate yeah. in terms of the way they behave. Um, and it can work when an organisation decides to invade themselves. But my word, did the entire industry go, oh, is yeah, that a good yeah, idea? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it really made people flinch. And I, I can equally imagine nine other leaders that couldn't have made it work. Yeah. For, for everyone that yeah. could, so um, it did work, and now they have we have we do have something that is bespoke for the industry, but still being able to use across, yeah. which is great. Yeah, and in there is that little bit of intersectionality as well. I mean, it's your um, your third sector specific area that you're working on, and technology, and that. Well, and without question, the idea was born of uh, looking at how totally different industries work yeah. to uh, record, and I think uh, some of it actually came from the fact that sport is quite a stato kind. Of, Stato world, it is, and yet we weren't very good at it when it was actually about looking at impact. So, yeah. um, so it's amazing, but definitely at the time there was discomfort, and and you know I was generally like, oh, that's a terrible idea. This is all going to go wrong. Yeah, and I was wrong again. There's a theme I'm spotting here. Oh, yeah, I'm wrong. I'm wrong all the time. When, but when I quite like being wrong. <laughs> yeah, me too. I figure if I'm if I if I if I just talk a lot, eventually I'm right sometimes. Yeah, it's like throwing mud, right? Some of it. Yeah, some of it spaghetti stuff. to the wall. Yes, that's right. 
Okay. So, uh, where does that get us? That gets to final thoughts, top tips. Yeah. Um, I guess mine's sort of a, maybe a slightly personal one I alluded to earlier. You know, things are interesting when you're interested in them. Mm -hmm. And I guess the top tip for me is if you're working in an organization as an individual or as a leader, you should be interested, right? You know, the more you are inquisitive and delve in a little bit, understand a little bit, you know, time constraints allowing to the things that are happening around you, the more interesting that you'll find them. It's, it's our areas of ignorance that tend to be the most boring. And, you know, if you look at, you know, the stages of learning and stuff like that, when, when you don't know anything, you can't imagine all the things that you don't know. So it's just boring and uninteresting. So I'd say as an individual, try and broaden your areas of interest, ask questions, be inquisitive, get to learn in the work environment. And I'd actually say more broadly, it's worth doing new things that broaden your learning experiences. So, you know, go to a museum, read a book, speak to somebody new, um, just kind of search for, for ideas and knowledge in, in different areas. And that'll help you identify new ideas, but it'll also help you find more things interesting. So that's my you know, thought for the day. I guess. As always, I've got two. Yeah, One is okay. believe in the process. Yeah. So believe, I know there's no, it's, it's you know, the Medici Medici effect is, Medici effect is quite difficult to prove, right? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's not, it's, it's a piece of theory, it's, it's deliberately so nice. theoretical yeah. and it's why it's so nice. <laughs> but you have to trust in the process, right? Believe that actually if you build your network, talk to people, talk to, a, get people talking within your organisation, ideas will come and yeah. some of them will be good sooner or later. Yeah. And I think that, so if you can really, really hang on to that, that's great. And I think then the other thing, um, it's a real plea if you work in an organisation and you have any influence over the culture of that organisation, get people to share their passions, even if it's nothing to do with work. Yeah. Right? The best, coolest stuff that we I have done in my career has usually involved someone randomly having a hobby and bringing it in and us yeah. learning something from it and then being able to somehow see two years down the road that that might be a link yeah. and if it's nothing all, else you get to know them right? you get to know them at the very worst and also you know you get to understand how something works that you didn't so mm -hmm. it's a lovely thing to do um, and definitely 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 it gives you an understanding of people's different skills and where they might have um, uh, an opportunity to in create some intersection yeah cool alright so there's some final thoughts and top tips and that gets us to the end of another whirlwind episode of a World of Work podcast um, where we've checked out innovation, looking at the S-curves, Clayton Christensen and the Medici effect with Franz Johansson. Gone all Scandic. Gone all Scandic, headed north. Well, actually, more headed east. Or maybe even south from here. I'm not, I think we're south of us. We're we? in Edinburgh, so um, we're on the Moscow line. Yeah, so, yeah. So, um, yeah, it would be different. In London, we'd be north. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so we've done that. We've done uh, some definitions, a bit of research roundup. Uh, list of a week looking at um, innovations that are interdisciplinary in nature shared a few stories and kind of wrapped up and I kind of like that subject I'm feeling all warm and flurry, fluffy and I haven't even had a drink yeah um, I really I yeah I I particularly as I've said like the Medici effect but also you know what I've come around to the S-curves particularly around the stuff about how can large organisations innovate yeah, how do you make that decision that? I think that's great uh, it's, a challenge. it's a really it's a interesting split. conversation and I think that could be brought into a boardroom really easily yeah I think so okay Cool. All right. Well, I guess it's just uh, time to say get in touch with us. You can email us. Um, check out our website. We're, our email's on there. Or you can tweet us. And it is at the Wow Podcast. At the Wow Podcast. Indeed it is. All right. Well, let's say goodbye. So bye-bye from me. Bye, James. And bye, everyone. Speak to you next time. Hi. Thanks for listening to this episode of the World of Work Podcast. 
To learn more about what we do, please check out our website, www.worldofwork.io, where you can read some great articles, learn more about the seminars and courses that we deliver, or even support us if you wish through our Patreon page. That's www.worldofwork.io. Thank you. Thank you.